As Caroline Criado Perez puts it, much of the world is simply not built or designed for women. From piano size and city transportation planning, to safety standards and cell phone sizes. Rather, she demonstrates that the world has been designed for what she terms reference man, a white, able-bodied 25 to 35-year-old male who weighs around 154 pounds or 70 kilograms. In a world of nearly 8 billion people, we live in a society that is shaped predominantly for half rather than the whole. And Prieto Perez brings together evidence to demonstrate how this manifests in our everyday lives and the dangers that it can cause to the livelihoods and well-being of women. Hello and welcome back to the Data Feminism Network podcast. My name is Michaela and I'm the executive producer of the DFN podcast and I'll be your host today. This season, we'll be sharing some of our favorite data feminism books with you to give you a foundation of literature to explore how algorithms and data can exacerbate inequality. And today, I'll be speaking with Electra, our social media manager, about Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. So in this episode, we're going to be discussing Invisible Women, which was written by Caroline Criado Perez in 2019. It's built on hundreds of case studies from around the world and it's extensively researched to demonstrate how human history is essentially just one big gender data gap. Given that male data composes the majority of what we know now, what is male has come to be seen as universal or as the norm. And this spans from policies to healthcare to the development of certain technology like iPhone size, so to get us started, I'm joined today by my DFN colleague, Electra. And to kick us off, Electra, why don't you tell our audience a little bit more about why you love the book and why you think the book is the foundational piece of literature for anybody interested in data feminism? Yeah, well, I think this is a groundbreaking book. I, I actually came across it when I was working at Open Data Watch, a nonprofit based in DC, and we were doing a lot of research on how to fill gender data gaps overall. Um, especially uh, one with Data2x called Bridging the Gap. And so really looking at what data is available on women's health or education overall, finding different gender inequalities all over the world and being able to track and monitor these gaps. Um, and so this was really important overall, just to understand what data gaps are out there and how we could possibly fill them. So this book came into my hands and I was very, very fortunate um, to have read it and really enjoyed it. I think it's been groundbreaking also because it's not just for technical audiences but has really made us made a stand all over the world and has become really influential again another funny story is that tracy king an english writer and producer even started a crowd a gofundme or a crowdfunder to send this book to all 650 mps in the uk um, so that they could all read it and and it can even impact policy that they're working on so i think this book has kind of made it all over the world um, and I love to see it. So I'm just excited to dive in and, and talk about some of these great examples. Yeah, me too. I uh, first read this book quite recently, actually, within the last year while I was still doing my master's in global affairs. And so I read the book and immediately became obsessed with gender data gaps and the fact that they're really hidden in so many aspects of our daily lives that we almost don't even realize as women. And in our last episode, when we talked about weapons of mass destruction, one thing that differs between that book and Invisible Women is that Weapons of Math Destruction went through examples that impacted people of all gender, race, income level, etc. 
Whereas Invisible Women was really focused on gender data gaps, specifically between men and women. And that to me as a woman was really impactful. And I, it completely shifted the trajectory of my academic, of my academic coursework. I changed all of my research topics to be about gender inequality specific to each course I was taking. And like you said, I think this piece of literature is foundational for economists, policymakers, data analysts. It spans so many professions, so many interest areas, and so many aspects of our lives. So I'm really excited to jump right into it. I think we can start off with a few of the most eye-opening case studies that I know you and I have talked about at length. And I think that one of the one of the most basic case studies that really impact everybody, all women, is car safety standards. And I was wondering, do you want to just jump right in with that one? Um, yeah, this is actually an example of a really deadly research gap. It's on something we use literally every day, a car, which is so surprising. But about 10,000 women die in car crashes each year because they're not well designed. Men are actually more likely to cause crashes, but women are more likely to die in them. And that's because when safety regulations are done on cars, crash dummies are just scaled down versions of a male dummy, which is about 4'11 and 108 pounds. Okay, so, you know, I'm, I'm a 5'2 female. I weigh more than 108 pounds. So that's already smaller than me. But on average, women are smaller in stature than men. So I feel like intuitively this could make sense. So what are the real harms and the real implications of using a scaled down male test dummy? as a replicant for women in these crash tests? Well, yeah, so women are just are not just smaller men. They, these crash dummies that are just smaller men are lacking any sort of internal morphology that distinguishes between the sexes, including the varying bone densities, abdominal and chest physiologies, and muscle structures that differ between men and women. Um, but even more so, the, nest, the neck musculature of a woman has less column strength and muscle mass, which makes women 22.1% more likely to suffer from a head injury than men in car accidents. And typically, since cars are, are built to prevent men's heads from smashing into the dashboard, and they do that quite effectively, reducing about 70% of whiplash in men, but for women, airbags and seatbelts that are designed for men can actually cause more injuries. And so you do hear stories about women with like seatbelt um, scars or getting hit by air, airbags and being concussed because these these airbags are not necessarily built for a, you know, a woman's structure, physiology. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. You hear a lot of those stories about women being harmed by the safety features in a vehicle when they're supposed to protect us. And even uh, with pregnant women, you hear stories about the fact that there's no real advice that doctors can give and also no really comfortable alternative than wearing the seatbelt in the way that it traditionally is worn. But there's no, not a lot, I'm going to say there's not a lot of research done on seatbelt placement and car safety features for pregnant women either. And that's another niche market of people who are obviously hugely impacted by this deadly data gap. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite shocking, especially because it's something that, you know, we're going and using quite literally every day and it's supposed to be keeping us safe. Really makes me not want to get in a car. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So the next example that I also think is really interesting are gender neutral urinals or gender neutral bathrooms in general. And this isn't just an example about having a bathroom that is gender neutral that people of all genders can use. This is about equality versus equity. So Electra, tell me a little bit more about this example. 
this is one of my favorite examples because we're always questioning why the women's line is longer than the men's line. Um, and I'm sure we've all been very frustrated by this multiple times, especially yes. when we're going to the movies or at the mall, you know, it's always so frustrating. And so Caroline Credo Perez actually goes into this and she says, she finds that women are taking 2.3 times longer in the bathroom than men. So actually having an equal number of stalls between the men's bathroom and the women's bathroom is technically equal, right? But it's not equitable in the sense that we're not taking account, uh, taking into account that women might, you know, be menstruating and so might need extra time in the bathroom. You're not taking into account that women are, you know, more likely to bring in their children into the bathroom and having to take care of them while they're in there. You're also not taking into account that women are stereotypically more likely to be caregivers. And so they may also be needing more time because of that. I can even jump in with the fact that women are also more likely to have UTIs and suffer from urinary tract infections just because of the physiological differences between men and women. And so that also means that women would be using the washroom much more frequently than men. And there's all of these reasons. I think Caroline even goes into the fact that, you know, with the space that women have in the bathroom and all the things that they are even carrying, like to take off your coat and hang up your purse or your backpack just to be able to use the washroom takes a longer amount of time than it takes a man to simply go to the bathroom. Yeah. I think this is interesting though, because we often think about equity versus equality and like having the same number of bathrooms while someone, sometimes people may think that's fair. is not actually the equitable solution to, you know, making sure that we have enough bathroom space for women and so that they're not always waiting in line. Um, and so smacking a gender neutral sign on the door is not actually, you know, solving the problem because you just need, you actually need to account for that, for that difference in time. And so from what I remember, Caroline goes into the fact that you would need almost double the amount of space in the bathroom to have enough stalls for women to make it equitable to the number of men that can be served in a traditional male bathroom. Is that, is that Yeah, right? exactly. So it'd be about 2.3 times more. Um, so you could say like two times more of the, of the amount of stalls or space. That would change my life as a woman. <laughs> So while waiting in line is not actually deadly, there are a lot of deadly health consequences to these research gaps. And one of them is one that we actually hear about often is that women are dying from heart disease at a very high rate. A recent analysis from the British Heart Foundation collected data from 22 million people around the world and actually found that women from lower socioeconomic backgrounds are 25% more likely to suffer from heart attacks than men in the same income bracket. And heart attack patients who are misdiagnosed, regardless of their sex, actually have a 70% higher risk of dying, which is an enormous jump. And so assuming that a woman gets lucky and has her heart diagnosed, heart disease diagnosed, she must then also navigate the fact that a lot of these treatments are male, male biased. And so there's so many different hurdles to receiving proper care and making sure that women's health is being counted for. Completely. And I know that Caroline goes into this in her book at length about how women have been traditionally not included in drug studies or different clinical trials because women during their menstrual cycle respond to medications differently. And so it can be really challenging to test drugs and other clinical methods on women and include women in those trials, you know, when you look at it from a cost effectiveness perspective, et cetera. And you know, I understand that that's probably true, but that doesn't mean that women shouldn't be included at all. So yes, it's probably really hard to get 
a couple hundred women who are menstruating at the same time for a cycle, it'll, for a clinical trial. And it'll probably take a lot longer to have those clinical trials come to fruition because you have to go through cycles and cycles of testing it on women, whereas a control group of men and a test group of men are really easy to source. And they're all going through the same 24-hour hormonal cycle. And that even extends to pregnant women. I remember in the book, Caroline went into an example about using formaldehyde on pregnant women. And that resulted in a huge number, over 10,000 fetal diseases. And so implementing the drug for pregnant women and taking the drug off the market for pregnant women in the US happened within the span of something along the lines of three years, a really short time span. But it still took 15 years longer to exclude pregnant women from clinical trials so that that wouldn't happen. But we still haven't come to a solution of how to include women and pregnant women into these, these medical tests to ensure that their safety is equally prioritized as men. Yeah, it's honestly very frustrating. And another one of these really kind of frustrating examples is that a lot of the times women are misdiagnosed or feel really unheard, uh, unheard in these hospital or healthcare settings. And one of the reasons that it, you know, heart disease is misdiagnosed is because it's misdiagnosed for anxiety. And so women are seen as these very like emotional, um, you know, beings that can't, that can only really suffer from these like emotional sentiments when really they're suffering from heart disease. And so Another piece of this will be, you know, making sure that women feel heard and are not always having to advocate for themselves in these hospital settings. Completely. And having a greater number of female physicians will definitely help that too. More representation in the field, which I think has, of course, changed from some of the studies that we've referenced from the 1960s and 1970s to now, thankfully, but it's still a long process and a long way to go to having true gender equality in the healthcare system. So one of the interesting things about filling these gender gaps is that they can actually be used for policymaking and formulation. And so they're very helpful. They're incredibly helpful tool for policymakers um, for implementing change. And so one of the fun questions or not so fun questions that Caroline Criado Perez asks is, can snow plowing be sexist? And I'm just going to pass it over to Michaela to explain this example. Yeah, I loved this example in the book. I found it really eye-opening because it's exactly what you said. One of those examples that takes gender data, operationalizes it in practice, and then yields cost-saving results. And I think that oftentimes people, policymakers, economists, whomever, might assume that the world is equal because, you know, they're not maliciously trying to make it not equal. But in doing so, in not taking into account gender differences, there are these huge problems in the way that society has been built. And it's not, again, intentional. It's just that nobody really thought about asking some of these questions, like, can snow plowing be sexist? So what I really like about the facts in the book is that Caroline doesn't really interpret or manipulate the data in any way to make the situation for women seem worse than it is which is a common critique that I would get when sharing the things that I learned from this book with friends or family or colleagues. And I think that she did a really good job of demonstrating how impactful this data is in this example. So this example comes from 2011 in Karlskoga, Sweden, where officials were reevaluating their policies through a gender lens. And at the time, and similarly to most cities, snow clearing began with major traffic arteries and the busiest roads and ended with pedestrian walkways and bike paths. So they prioritized the busy streets and the main intersections first. 
But as Caroline showed in this chapter, the sequence of snow plowing impacted women differently than men because women and men have very different travel patterns and women are more likely to walk and take public transportation than men. So 66% of public transportation users in France are women, 64% in Philadelphia, and 62% in Chicago. Whereas for men, they're more likely to drive than women. And in one-car households, men often dominate the use of a family vehicle. So women are across the board and around the world more likely to be using public transit. But their travel patterns are so different, not because women are simply taking transit more than men, but they are also using transit differently than men. So women do 75% of the world's unpaid care work, which affects their travel needs throughout a city. So she brings up something called trip chaining in the book, which is common among women whose travel pattern is made up of a lot of small and interconnected trips. So that could include dropping off children at school before going to work, taking a grandparent to a doctor's appointment after work, or doing grocery shopping on the way home. All of these things are kind of interwoven into a woman's daily travel routine, more so than they are for men because they do so much of this unpaid care work. And so in Sweden, the politicians decided to kind of reverse the clearing of snow. So instead of clearing the most used roads first, they prioritized pedestrian walkways and public transport users, which kind of seems potentially counterintuitive when you first think of it. But in actuality, cars are prepared to drive on snow, especially cars with snow tires. And so prioritizing pedestrians actually had a really surprising result, which was that it saved a lot of money. And it turned out that through hospital admissions injury data, they were able to see that the percentage of people who are mostly women who were being put in the hospital due to pedestrian accidents and cycling accidents during the wintertime, during the snow months, reduced drastically when they reversed the snow clearing pattern. And so not only were they actually protecting women by taking this gendered approach to snow plowing, but they were also saving a lot of money on healthcare costs. That's a really interesting example. I, I love to hear those examples because it really helps promote and demonstrate to us why it's so important to have these uh, gender, these gender lens on such you know, day-to-day activities. I completely agree. And I think a lot of the time in today's capitalist society, I'm going to take it there. We are motivated by money. We are motivated by gaining more money or saving more money. But that is a huge motivator for governments, for businesses, even for individuals. If I can take an act that will save or make me more money, I obviously will do it because I'm self-interested. And so for politicians who are extending their resources where they will be used most effectively, examples like this are key. And examples like this can be implemented in countries all around the world to take a gendered lens. It probably was a large investment of time and resources, but that outcome is so much greater than what they were doing before. Yeah, well, talking about money, another great example from the book um, that we thought was very interesting was actually regarding venture capitalists and investors. It's actually shown that funds to women-owned companies and startups have a really good return on investment. Michaela, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yes, I loved this example. (laughs) I thought it was so empowering. Women-owned businesses are so crucial to the economy. 
And so a lot of startups, especially tech startups, are backed by venture capitalists rather than banks. And that's because they can take risks that banks often can't. But 93% of venture capitalists in the world are men. And that's a stat taken from the book. But I was really interested in this example. So I did a little bit of research outside of the book as well. And according to a study done by Deloitte in 2020, for those of you who don't know, Deloitte is a consulting company, only 14% of venture capitalists in the US are women. And as Caroline puts it in the book, men back men. So the lack of women represented leads to less women-owned businesses receiving funding. And then she goes on to say that in 2018, the Boston Consulting Group, or BCG, found that even though on average female business owners received less than half of the level of investment that their male counterparts got, they produced over twice the revenue. So for every dollar of funding, female-owned startups generated 78 cents compared to male-owned startups, which generated 31 cents. And even further, they found that female-owned startups perform better over time and generate 10% more in cumulative revenue over the five-year period that the study was done. And so I think that knowing this, venture capitalists all over the world should be taking female-owned startups more seriously and potentially investing more capital in them because they are opportunities for revenue and opportunities for growth. Yes, we love to hear that. One of my favorite stories is about Wolf Hurd. She's the world's youngest female self-made billionaire. Um, and she created the dating app Bumble. I don't know if you are all familiar with it, but she ended up selling it and uh, taking the com- company public at the young age of 31. And so just one of the many examples of all these you know, powerful and empowered female entrepreneurs. Totally. But also, Michaela, why is this continuously happening? Well, Okay, so I asked myself the same question, and I read through the BCG case study that Caroline cites in the book to learn a little bit more about why women are receiving less than men. And so based on their research and their interviews with investors and with female startup founders, they found that there were three reasons as to why women were receiving less than men. So the first reason was because women founders and their presentations seem to be subject to challenges and pushback from investors to a different degree than men. More women reported being asked to establish that they had a basic understanding of technical knowledge. And one woman interviewed is a co-founder with a male partner. And she shared that when pitching with her male co-founder, investors tended to assume that he knew all of the technology and directed technical questions toward him almost exclusively. And women founders often hesitate to respond to criticism when investors make negative comments about their pitch, whereas men will often declare why investors are wrong immediately and with a lot more confidence. And that could come, that behavioral difference could come from a variety of different reasons, but that was one observation that was made. The second was that male founders are more likely to overpitch and oversell whereas women are more conservative about their projections overall. So part of the reason for such a large disparity or such a large difference in the funding that goes to women versus the funding that goes to men could be the fact that women are just simply asking for less than men. And then the last reason was that male investors are less familiar with products and services that women-founded businesses market to other women. So many women interviewed offered products or services related to childcare or beauty. And in Invisible Women, examples in the book included 
things like menstrual tracking apps or breast pumps, all things that male investors obviously would struggle to see the need or the potential value of because they simply don't know the market as well as women do. But that also means that the venture capitalists that women are pitching to just don't see why these products would be useful. That's pretty silly because the breast pump industry is estimated to value over $700 million with potential to grow. So it's kind of odd to see that investors are not going for it. Totally. It's not like women are going to stop being pregnant anytime soon. Exactly. (laughs) So this is just one of like many systems that have been really created by men and therefore best serves men. And again, I think what's really important throughout this book is to understand that none of this is done on purpose. Society has just evolved this way. A hundred years ago, women weren't allowed to work. Women weren't allowed to vote. And so there's so many recent changes that include women in the marketplace and in the political sphere, but we really need to keep that momentum going to make it even more inclusive. Yeah. And I think one of those big steps and a reminder to everyone listening is just to keep asking for more. I obviously could talk about the historical exclusion of women all day, but Aletra and I, when planning out this episode, we really wanted to relate some of the information from the book back to current events. And so For the last example that we have for you today, uh, we're going to dive into chapter 16 of the book, which was called, It is Not the Disaster That Kills You. And the disaster that we're focusing on is climate change. Electra, walk us through the impacts of climate change on women. Yeah. So this is, I think, a really powerful example because climate change is obviously just an unfortunate reality right now. And so Caroline does explain a lot about how climate change can impact men and women differently, which is not something, you know, you you don't normally pair gender research to environmental research, which is a big, and there's a big research gap right there. Um, And so gender data, which I realized I didn't quite introduce earlier, but it's the disaggregation of data between sex. So you have data on men and women, and so you're able to kind of understand the differences or the inequalities that are occurring. And so gender data is very much important for understanding what happens after disaster strikes? And so if there's a hurricane or you know increased famine in a certain area, knowing how that's impacting when women and men differently is really, really important for recovery efforts. And so there is increasing, unfortunately, there is increasing evidence that women and girls are disproportionately suffering from climate change and environmental disasters. And these persistent data gaps are making it really hard for us to tailor policies um, and create a more inclusive disaster relief program. And so to tackle the climate crisis overall and to make sure we have these equitable solutions, we really need to know, you know, really need to increase our research and really need to understand how this uh, climate change is impacting women differently and how policies can, can adapt and can use a gender lens to mitigate these differences. And one of the very recent examples of how climate change impact women is, is being seen right now in Pakistan. In September, 2022, there were devastating floods that killed more than 1,500 people and the impact of Pakistan's deadly monsoons will not be felt equally, unfortunately. And so women, understanding how it's impacting women in Pakistan, it will be really important. Just to give a few examples, Pakistani women were already facing numerous health challenges. One of their, They are one of the countries with the highest maternal mortality rates in South Asia. And now with the monsoons, there's additional barriers to access to care. And, you know, we might see maternal mortality increase in the next couple months. In addition to this, Child marriage also increases when there's economic pressures. And so a lot of this occurs during natural disasters when people have lost their livelihood or during famines where people are unable to sell their crops. And I think pregnant women, 
that's one really important category of women who are at risk during climate disasters. And in some of the research that I did at school in an environmental justice course that I took during my master's, we were also talking about the different reasons why women are more impacted from just a resource scarcity standpoint. So oftentimes women don't have access to the family phone in uh, emerging economies or in, in developing countries. And so for disaster relief notifications, like that the flood is likely to happen or that you should evacuate your home, women are often not the ones to receive those messages. And sometimes they stay at home for fear of leaving their house and waiting for their male counterpart, their husband, their father, their brothers to come back for them. But in situations of extreme climate crisis, that's often not possible. Or in terms of even just who manages the finances and can invest in disaster relief, women often aren't the ones who, who control or manage finances in their families. So in a lot of these high-risk areas, women are already kind of in a disadvantaged position before crisis even strikes. So what were other really surprising outcomes? Yeah, so child marriage is also a concern after natural disasters because of the economic turbulence. You're either not able to provide for your child um, or need the economic support. And so already in Pakistan, there's an estimated 18.9 million girls being married before 18 and 4.6 million married before 15, which is a huge number of uh, girls being married young. And so these economic pressures that increase uh, during natural disasters just exacerbate that. And on top of it, there's also exacerbated amounts of violence against women and girls. And so these, these pressures that, are, um, that occur after climate disasters are really important to be able, you're really, it's really important for us to look at them and be able to implement policies quickly, knowing that you know, there is an increased amount of violence and there is an increased amount of child marriage after climate disasters. And it really spikes. There's such a small window of time that we can intervene strategically and proactively that is efficient and effective in responding to these disasters in order to protect and support women and girls as well. Yeah. And having access to this data will be paramount for even thinking about, you know, what type of implementation plan you can use or what kind of access or resources women and girls need during that time. Exactly. All right. I think that we have covered a lot of ground um, exploring the key themes and some different examples from this book. Uh, just to wrap up for our listeners, I'm curious, Electra, what your key takeaways are from Invisible Women? Yeah, it's a very dense book with a lot of interesting stories and information. But I think my biggest takeaway is to really think and question how things are being created and organized. The book really outlines the scary truth that the gender of the gender data gap and shows us that the bulk of the world's data is based on male bodies and behaviors, which means we're actively designing and organizing activities that disadvantage women. So I think my ultimate takeaway is that we need to be questioning things constantly, all the time, you know, even to the point where, you know, the temperature of your office, silly things that you know, you're affecting the daily life, um, but really just thinking about how things are designed and how they're impacting your daily life. But what about you, Michaela? What do you think? Yeah, I completely agree. This book really opened my eyes to uh, just how much of our daily lives are designed by men for men, even when it's not intentional to exclude women. It still does in some capacity. So I think that's a really important takeaway. For me, I think just reflecting on some of the examples that we highlighted, some of my favorite examples from the book, like uh, snowplowing in Sweden or 
the BCG case study about women-owned versus male-owned tech startups. I think that a lot of the time when we consider doing gender-based analyses, we think about the upfront cost of disaggregating data based on gender or, you know, for healthcare, finding enough women to participate in a study. I think that even though that might take more time in the long run to complete a study or an evaluation or address a certain policy, at the end of the day, the book demonstrates that it actually is cost-saving. So doing these gender analyses and disaggregating data by gender actually ends up saving money in the long run and making economic sense. And I think that's a really key takeaway for, you know, upper level decision makers, policymakers, people who are in positions of power who can be making these types of changes. I think that that's one of the reasons why this book is so impactful, because it highlights that key point that it does make economic sense. So thank you so much, Electra. I think this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm really excited for next week's episode and hopefully everybody tunes in. Thank you, Michaela. To stay up to date on DFN events, check out our website at www.datafeminismnetwork.org. If you're a fan of the show, follow us on Instagram at datafeminismnetwork and on Twitter at datafemnetwork. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, where we post event updates and share job opportunities related to data equity and inclusion. Be sure to tune in to our next episode, where we'll dive into Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer.